Psalm 77. For the director of music, for Jedithan of Asaph, a psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God's? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's words. They are strong words. They are honest words. Might be surprising words if you've never read that psalm before. It's one of those psalms that was written because we don't have to live for long some of us can live longer than others before this happens, before things go wrong, before actually life doesn't go the way that we would expect, where if we were writing the script for our own lives, it would be different to the life we are now living. For some of us, there are dramatic moments of change. There's a diagnosis from the doctor that is life-changing. There's a bereavement. There's an accident. There's a redundancy. There's exam results that weren't as good as we'd hoped, and suddenly life changes course. For others of us, it's much slower. It's like the slow death of a dream. And things that we'd hoped for, things that we longed for, things that we expected, and maybe even seemed good and even normal to us, we realize aren't going to be our life experience. They can be different for different people. For some, they can just long to be married, and yet, as the decades pass, they're still single. For some, it can be a desire to have children, and it just doesn't ever happen. For others, it can be in a, a desire to be in a happy marriage. You get married with so many hopes, and yet as the years go by, and you and your partner remain as distant as ever, you realize that things probably are not going to change. There's a coldness that's set in. 
Pink Floyd put it well, day after day, love turns gray, like the skin on a dying man. And night after night, we pretend it's all right, but I've grown older, and you've grown colder, and nothing is very much fun anymore. Death would dream. And however life falls apart for you, you only have to live long enough and you will suffer. And you'll suffer deeply. And your life won't be the way you expected it to be. You won't be able to get all your ducks back in a row. Nobody's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again just as he was. That's the reality of life in the world in which we live. The question is, what do we do about that? There are all sorts of different answers. For some, it's the ultimate proof that God isn't real. If he was real in the way the Bible says, well, hey, life wouldn't be as bad as it is, as difficult, as messed up, as full of evil things as it is. It's one answer. Another's the sort of Buddhist answer. Things are sort of popular answer around here. I visit a lot of homes with Buddhas. A sort of let's pretend answer to suffering. Let's just get our mind in a different place. Let's just be positive. Let's pretend the pain doesn't hurt as much as it does. It's not real. That's another answer. Globally popular. Locally popular. But the Bible presents us with a very different answer to the big disappointments of life, the heartbreaking situations, the evil around us. In the middle of your Bible, there is a hymn book preserved for 3,000 years and counting. In fact, some of the oldest psalms, older still, more than three and a half thousand years, the ones written by Moses himself. And those psalms tell a different story, a different response to evil and suffering and disappointment and heartbreak in our lives. Fifty of the 150 hymns preserved for us are what we call psalms of lament. Psalms where someone pours out their heart to God and says, if you are so good, why is my life so hard, so bad? Why is this world so messed up? If you are everything you claim to be, or knowing, or powerful, or good, loving towards me, then why? Why is my life like this? Why is this world like this? Why, when I pray again and again and again, don't you come through for me? Were you asleep at the wheel? Have you lost your grip? Those are the sorts of questions the Psalms of Lament ask of God. And they're really important to us in a messed up world in which we live. It's a two-for-one deal today. The points and the title are identical. Psalm 77, I prayed, nothing happened, what next? Okay, that's the title and the points, in case you're confused. I prayed, nothing happened, what next? That's where we're going today. And let's get into it now. Psalm 77 says, I cried out to the Lord for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. 
At night I stretched out my tiring hands and would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. Selah. If you check your footnote, you'll see it's in there. The reason they take it out is no one knows what it means. But it seems to suggest pause. Think about this. And it's used four times in this psalm. And every time it's used, I'm going to make us pause and think. So here's our first little section. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Here is a psalmist who's in distress. (coughs) When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. We don't know what his problem was. He doesn't tell us. What we do know is he is in distress. He is in pain. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, said this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain insists on being attended to. We can't ignore it. If you're in physical pain, you try and deal with it. If you're in emotional pain, it eats you up. If you're in spiritual pain, it's the worst of all because you wonder if your whole world is falling to pieces. So God gets our attention often through pain. Here's the thing I like about the psalmist. He shouts back. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. You see, one way when troubles come that we can respond is to either turn in on ourselves or go quiet. There are many things that annoy Susan about me. But one, she doesn't know which one's coming, but she's got a long list in her head. I'm just going to narrow it to one. Is when I'm down or when I'm distressed or I'm um, struggling, I go quiet. And then she asked me the question, what's wrong? And I go, nothing's wrong. That drives her nuts. It's on a long list of things that drive her nuts. But that is one of the things that drives her insane about me. What she wants me to do, you see, is to articulate my pain. Why am I stressed? Why am I down? You see, the psalmist makes a bold first move here. He doesn't keep it all in. He lets it all out. He lets rip at God. But I find verse 3 a big surprise. I don't know if you did when Simon read it. Did you say that? I remembered you, God, and... What would you expect it to say next? I cheered up. I got a grip. I remembered how amazing you are and how last Tuesday you answered my prayers, and I was fine, dandy. I set back out into the week, the sun was shining, and I whistled a merry tune. Doesn't say that, does it? I love it. (laughs) I remembered you, God, and I groaned. It was worse than ever when I thought about you. It made me even more miserable than I had been before. I would not be comforted. And my spirit grew faint. My strength vanished. 
when I tried to deal with you. It's not what we expect, is it? And it's not really much how we pray. Simon and I trained for the ministry together. I don't remember much about the lectures. They were a long time ago, and I'm old. He's not so old, but he's, he's getting there. Uh, this was 20 years ago. I can only remember two lines. One was because we were taught to every single time. And it was this, that the Bible, I'll give you this as a freebie, the Bible is all about the faithfulness of a gracious God. On every page, you will find the faithfulness of a gracious God. Okay, that's what we were taught month after month after month by our biblical theology lecture. The Bible is all about the faithfulness of a gracious God. I only remember one other line. It was in the the notorious post-lunch session where we were all trying not to fall asleep. Particularly my pat lunch that the lady I stayed with gave me was enormous. So I was always very full and comfortable and happy. And there was a lecture going on, and I was paying some attention. And it's the only line I now remember. I can't remember who the lecturer was, what he was talking about, but he said this, with God, things usually get worse. It's the only other line that stayed with me from my entire training, word for word verbatim. With God, things usually get worse. And at the time in my 20s, I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, poor chap, he's obviously had a hard paper round. You know, I should get alongside this guy. He's losing his grip. He's losing his faith. With God, things usually get worse. I thought, not for me. I'm on the up. And then I've cleared 50. And I've got a few more decades behind me. And I can see there are times that with God, things actually do get worse. And that's where the psalmist goes next, because he prays, he cries out, he's been up all night doing it. It's not like he hasn't given it his best shot, but look what happens to him next. You kept my eyes from closing, he couldn't sleep. But now I was too troubled to speak, I can't even say anything now. I thought about the former days, the days of long ago. I remember my songs in the night. He does what so many of us do when life's tough, he remembers the good old days. The older we get, the more tempting that is. Oh, things ain't what they used to be. And he remembers how good it was. It's a bit like everything he loved has been broken. It can't be fixed. And he wishes he could just go back to how things were. I think a lot of us sometimes get to that place. And the songs going around in his head here aren't songs of praise. They're sad songs. He's more Adele than Pharrell, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, That's where he is in his mind. And so he's struggling to get a grip. And then he basically frames it in six questions. Six questions. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? In his anger, withheld his compassion. This is bleak. This is a man who's literally weighing up in the Bible, should I give up on my God? Have I made a big mistake following this God? You know, there's a lot of gods out there. All the nations have their own. There's wealth and riches elsewhere, and here I am and I'm suffering. Have I made a mistake following 
God. I wonder if you're here this morning and that's where you are. Simon said, I can't see the depths of your heart, and I can't. I can see that you have turned up. That's as much as I can see this morning. Some of you are looking this way, some of you aren't. It's not really a window into your soul. Maybe you're just thinking, what's been the point? I've given it a shot being a Christian, but it's not really worked out for me. Maybe you're like the psalmist here. Will God reject forever? Will he never show favor to me and my family again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? What promise is he thinking about? Well, God said to Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. I'll bless you. This isn't a blessed life. I'm not happy. He said in Exodus to Moses, he gave a description of himself. He said this, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how he described himself. But look at what the psalmist experiences here. There's no sense of God's unfailing love in verse 8. In verse 9, there's no sign of his mercy, and there's certainly no sign of his compassion. Saying, God, have you changed? What's up? You said you're like this, but I don't see it. Maybe he's thinking about the king promised to David. In all of these ways, it seems as if the whole world has fallen apart. Christopher Ash who's a Bible commentator in this country, just said this about Psalm 77, and it struck me. It said, Psalm 77 voices the most fearful anxiety a soul can harbor. Was I right to believe that the God of the covenant love is faithful to his promises? Have I made a mistake? When God made all these promises, did he mean me? Did he mean me? Did he mean I could put my life in his hands and I would be safe for all eternity? Did he mean me? So nothing, in a sense, happens. But that's not where the psalm ends. Look where he goes next. He's at rock bottom. But verse 10, then, is a sort of changing point. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. What does he do in that moment when everything seems bleak? He talks to himself. That's what he says. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. He is now speaking to himself, speaking truth to himself. In the midst of his distress, he goes one last go at thinking, right, I've got to get a grip on these things. Years ago, the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? What did he mean? I mean, in our culture, we often say speaking to yourself is the first sign of madness, don't we? Lloyd-Jones said the opposite. I think it's a bit like this. I don't know if you've ever, I'm not asking if you're boxing fans. I know some of you are, some of you aren't. But even if you're not, you're probably aware there's a thing called the weigh-in, where the two fighters square up to each other and are put on the scales to check they're the right weight. And it nearly always now kicks off because there's this thing called trash talk. And they'll start trashing the other guy. And one of them will say something, and then someone will say something back, and then it ratchets up. And often the fight kind of starts in the room, and they have to separate them out. 
Here's the thing. You've got trash talk happening in your head every day. The guy who lives in my head is bigger than Mike Tyson. And he says things to me like, you can't do that. You're too stupid. You're too sinful. You let people down. You're a rubbish husband, rubbish, hus- ru- rubbish father, rubbish son, rubbish brother, rubbish pastor. It's unrelenting in my head. It's massive. Every day, pretty much, at some point, those thoughts will occur to me. Even walking down the hill to preach today, some of that was going on in my head. And the guy in my head is massive to me. You know when they're going for a fight, they're about the same size, aren't they? That's the whole point of the different weight classes. This is like me going up against Tyson or Frank Bruno. I met Bruno once. He's enormous. Can you imagine in the weigh-in if one of them said something and the other guy just sat down and cried? Can you imagine? Said something nasty and the guy just burst into tears. Or sat down and curled up in a ball. You know, it wouldn't be a moment, would it, that the guy's going to look back on, and yet isn't that what we do every day? There's a part of us that curls up and dies. There's a part of us that isn't up for the fight. Because we believe what that voice tells us, and it is lies straight from Satan himself. He is a hotline to each one of us. And his aim is to destroy your confidence in God and to make you ineffective in living for him in your home, ineffective in living for him in your workplace, ineffective in living for him wherever you go. That's his goal. And into that mess, the psalmist does what Lloyd-Jones says we should do. He speaks to himself. In this psalm, the first 12 verses are full of I and me. Did you see that? I cried out to the Lord, I, 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 me, me, me. From verse 12 onwards, 13, there's a change. He doesn't mention himself again. His eyes completely move from himself, and God fills his horizon. What does he remember about God? Look at verse 13. Your ways are holy. This is the holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is good and perfect and glorious and worthy of our worship. He remembers that no one is as great as this God. The God who made the universe, as Simon reminded us, has not lost or expended any of his power. He is still all-powerful. You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. He remembers that, then remembers the greatest Old Testament miracle of all. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. He remembers that God's people were slaves in Egypt, under Pharaoh, under their gods, and God led them out to freedom. And again, he pauses. And he's in a great spot now. Because he then goes very, very deep. He tries to imagine what it would be like to see the waters of the Red Sea mounted in front of you and to see that moment when God acted. He says, the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and right. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. 
your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of who? Moses, the leader, Aaron, the high priest. He talks truth to himself. He reflects on the greatest moment in God's salvation history so far, and he says, there's my anchor, there's my hope, there's my rock. That's what you are capable of. Where do we go? Where do we go when actually none of our life really makes a lot of sense? The voice in our head is cruel and unkind. And there's no easy way for things to be fixed. We look in the, in the end to the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he was fully God yet became human. And he lived in a world that was messed up and broken. And he suffered Hebrews says this about Jesus. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Do you not find that remarkable? Here's God in human form. God with all the power that Jesus had to work incredible miracles with an amazing relationship with his Father in heaven. And yet, what does it say? During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Where did he pray like that? In the garden of tears. Gethsemane. He cried out to God to save him even from death. And what did his Father in heaven say to him? No. There is no other way. And so it seemed for Jesus as if nothing had happened either. His prayers weren't answered. And on the cross, darkness came down and covered the land. And he was nailed there and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A line of incredible lament. Where are you, God, when I need you the most? Where have you gone in this darkness? He prayed that way. But again, it wasn't the end of the story because of what happened next. Hebrews tells us, tells us what to do because of what Jesus did. He said that the author of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to him, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Always the danger. We lose heart. But the writer of Hebrews says, look to God, look to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What joy? The joy of rescuing people like you and me from our sin and from eternal death and separation from him in hell. For the joy set before him of coming out the other side of the grave and being raised to new life and being the beginnings of the new creation that Simon's been speaking to us about this morning. For the joy set before him of ascending and sitting at his father's right hand side for all eternity as king of kings and lord of lords. For the joy. And so when we struggle 
It's to Jesus that we look. Today, he's at that place of power, and he cares about you. He knows you. He knows the thoughts in your head. He knows the struggles you face that you can't share with anyone, even the person who loves you the most. And he says we can pray to him. We can pour out our hearts to him. He understands because he's walked in our shoes. And there may be times when, like the psalmist, you reach that point where actually you can't even speak. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. You've been there? Where in the end you just don't know what to say or pray anymore. It's just a mess. Even in that moment, heaven is not silent. Romans says this, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. When our words run out, it's not that nothing is happening anymore. It's that reality is kicking in. Maybe like me, your prayer life is essentially telling God what to do a lot of the time. Is that how you pray? Dear God, I'd like X, 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 and X to happen. I want that to happen for that person, that to happen for me, that to happen in the world. I pray as if I'm God a lot of the time, that Neil Todman knows best. You know, when you get to a point when you don't know what to pray anymore, you know where you've reached? The point where God is God. God is on his throne. And you are silent before the God who made you. And you're saying, God, I don't know what to pray, but I believe you alone can sort this. You alone have got me. You alone have got this world in the palm of your hands. And so when we reach the end of ourselves, what do we do? We can sit silently and know that God prays for us. And then we can move on from that place and do what the psalmist did and remember him. Remember that our God today is holy. Our God today is powerful. Our God today is still working miracles in the world around us. Our God is as he is in Jesus Christ. And he went through the end of the psalm for us. The waters of death saw Jesus Christ and they conversed and retreated. The storm clouds poured down their waters and heaven did fire down. Lightning, the arrows of God hit him, but Jesus endured their wrath. And in that moment, he created a pathway to God that is unbreakable for those of us who know, trust, and love Jesus. The exodus that we've been taken out of the land of slavery is not that it ends there and eventually gets us to glory. It's that every step along the way we go, Jesus Christ is with us and for us, and he will hold us fast. He will keep us to the end. There is an unbreakable access to God because of what he did for us. Verse 19 is an amazing verse. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footsteps were not seen. All week as I've been preparing this, I've had words in my head from a guy called William Cowper, who was 
around about 250 years ago ministry. I want to finish with them for you. Take them to heart. If life's hard right now, struggles, take them to heart. If you're in a good place right now, life's sweet, bank them. Because the day will come when you will need them. Eight lines. Here they are. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, is that you and me? Fearful? Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The crowds ye so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. That's who we worship. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. He's big with mercy. And he loves you. Let me pray. Lord, this is such a psalm. There is so much here to do good to our souls. Thank you for the psalmist's honesty before you, that he didn't pretend that he was real in his relationship with you. Lord, teach us to go deeper with you, to be more honest with you, to be more honest with others who love you, to reach out for help in that moment where we feel we can go no further, and to know the comfort, the comfort that we can have when we look to you afresh and remember who you are and what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you entered this broken world of pain and suffering, that when we go through the hardest of times, you know, you've been there, you understand. Help us to believe that. Help us to open up to you, to not feel we're being disloyal, but actually, Lord, help us. Help us, help us. Help us to cry out and to mean it. And in those moments, we pray we might see you. Lord, so many times you feel distant from us. So many times we, we struggle. But there are times in the depths of our struggles where you reach down and we meet you as never before. Father, we pray that might be our experience even today. In Jesus' name, amen.